Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Well, Justin, I I was trying to prepare for the show this week, and I found a way to prepare for both this show and my day job all at once. And I was very excited. How'd you swing it, that, Sid? It is so rare that the, you'd think the two would overlap a lot since they're both medically oriented, but... Uh, telling patients about how we used to bleed people and then actually practicing medicine actually don't, uh, two very different ideas don't coincide very often. Um, so what, how did you, how did you find this overlap? Well, uh, I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a grand rounds. Do you know what a grand rounds is? I mean, I do, but why don't you explain it for everybody out there? I guess that's worth explaining. A grand rounds, as opposed to making rounds, when a doctor says they're making rounds and many people might already know this, but just in case you don't. Uh, that usually means we're walking around and physically seeing patients in a hospital or then s- follow that, following that up by sitting at a table and talking about them. Mm-hmm. Those are rounds. But grand rounds, mm. grand rounds is when we all sit in a room together and teach each other something. So it used to actually involve a patient back in, back in the day, you would actually bring a patient into the room and tell all of the residents or students or whatever about them and, um, you know, go over their case in front of everybody and hopefully, like, get some good ideas about what to do next. And the patient would be present? Or yes. no? Okay. The patient would be present. Wild. Yeah. Uh, it's an uncomfortable day, I feel like. Nowadays, that's rarely done, although there are times where patients are invited in to share their stories and such. It's very different. It's a very different context. But most of the time, it's about a topic or a, a case that we can all learn from or something like that. And so it's like an educational opportunity. So I'm doing a grand rounds. And uh, I thought, you know, why not do something that I, I think I'm getting pretty good at, which is medical history. And we don't learn a lot about that in med school. So I was going to do the history of wound care. And I thought, you know what? We should do that as a show. But that said, if, if somebody was there at the Grand Rounds. Right. If you are, uh, depending on when, when exactly you put this show up. If you have or are planning on attending Family Medicine Grand Rounds tomorrow in dining room six off the cafeteria, <laughs> you, you probably <laughs> don't want to listen yet. It's going to re- be a repeat. It's going to be a repeat. <laughs> it's gonna, I know that a lot of our listeners will be there at Grand Rounds. So sorry in advance. You just sign the sheet in the cafeteria and you get free food. 
Nice. What, are we talking Schlotzky's or pizza? Or no, I mean, up? it's hospital cafeteria food. But still. But as much as you want. Whoa. They have good bacon. They do. Uh, not for at lunch. Hospital. Yeah, for a hospital. They're very great at bacon. But let's talk about wound care. Okay. Uh, so thank you to all the people who recommended this topic. Kara and Bria and Allison and Charles and Vanessa, Amanda, Glenn, Jennifer, Lindsay, Shauna, Shannon, and Celia. A lot of people. And, and a lot of people recommend this because... Uh, one, there's a lot to say about wound care through the ages, as long as humans have been getting wounds. wounds. Exactly. Which is since there have been humans, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but we also do a lot of gross stuff. Great. And people love that, I found. So uh, what's interesting is that some of the principles of wound care that still exist today actually have persisted through the ages. Really? If you, there is a clay tablet from uh, 2200 BCE with a description of what they call the three healing gestures of wound care. And those are wash the wound, make the plaster, and bandage the wound. Okay. You got it. There you go. Make the plaster, I'm not sure about, but... You know what's interesting? So the term plaster... I know they use that as bandage in the UK. Right. So when you think of what we think of, uh, like here stateside, what we call a Band-Aid, generally, which is a brand name, I guess. Sure. But we call right. everything like that a Band-Aid. Uh, that, that is a plaster, at my understanding, in the UK. But a plaster, as I'm referencing it historically, obviously they didn't have, from the start, adhesive bandages. So a plaster was some sort of dressing for a wound. Uh, throughout history, it was usually made of like clay or mud, and then it may have some sort of healing herbs Okay. Kind of mixed with it. So like getting it dirty, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you would get the wound really dirty. Get with it this. dirty. So the three good things are wash the root wound, get it dirty, and, and then, then wrap it up. It. Perfect. <laughs> no, but you would you would put the plaster on there to try to absorb moisture out of the wound. Mm -hmm. There was a thought that if you tried to, because if it had like drainage and stuff, like pus coming out of it, like just absorb all that in the clay or mud or whatever, and then wrap it in a bandage to keep it dry. And then sometimes you would add oil to the plaster because then it wouldn't stick to the wound, which mm. was a smart idea. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, you ever had like... The edge of the band-aid stick to like the actual part of the cut. I mean, that's no fun. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. It's grody. Exactly. So uh, what's interesting is if you look back to like wound care, one of the primary ingredients used by the ancient Sumerians was beer. Oh, nice. For wounds. Yes. And I didn't know this. They actually were big time brewers. They brewed like 19 different kinds of beer. Brewmarians. <laughs> That's, that's good, Justin. Thanks, Sid. If you've been talking to my dad. <laughs> no. Um, but they would, uh, they would apply beer to directly to wounds or add it to wound dressings. They uh, take it out of the bottle first, I'm assuming. Right? Yes. They would just use it in a cold compress. I don't think it was bottled beer is going to be true. my guess. That's a good point. I imagine like giant casks or something. Yeah. Um, but they would add something like one recipe invo involved turpentine and daisy and some flour and some milk and some beer. And you mix it all together in a small copper pan then you spread it on the skin and then you bandage it. And I don't know. This sounds like also some weird holiday drink that involves beer. Yeah. Too. Yeah. It's like a low grade eggnog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I just thought it was fascinating that they were expert brewers, apparently. Yeah. Beer is ancient and magical, Justin. You're right, Sydney. I miss it very much. I'm, I know you do. You make <laughs> me very aware of that every single day of our lives. <laughs> just throwing that in there. 
Uh, the Egyptians were the first to introduce the idea of honey to wound healing. And we've done a whole episode on honey, so I won't, I won't belabor this point. But honey is actually helpful in some cases in wound healing. Some. Some, right. And we have known that for, obviously, a very long time. Um. We've been using it for a very long time. No is a very strong word. I don't think we, we knew much at this point. We randomly guessed it and it turned out to be right Thank you. Thank for you. a very long time. Uh, so it was a primary component of a lot of their wound dressing recipes along with grease and lint. And so when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> you old doofuses. Just two steps forward, 800 steps now, back with you guys. Now, hold on. Let me break it down for you. And, sh- and sh- like pizza we found on the ground. <laughs> Toe so, jam. Grease, lint, and honey was, was like a basic wound dressing. And the lint, when they say the word lint, when we use the word lint, they probably mean some kind of like fibrous material from vegetables. Okay. 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 Like smut. That's different, right? Silt? Corn silk? Is that what you're thinking Corn of? Corn silk, not smut. No. Smut's like the That's different. The rot. Like yeah. silk. Yeah. Corn silk. Yeah. Basically. Like something like that. Something fibrous. And the idea was that it would absorb drainage from the wound to try to keep it dry again. Uh, the grease would have been some sort of animal fat. So the idea was like to create a barrier on top of the wound. Okay. To protect it from stuff. Okay. Right? Okay. So you take some grease as a barrier. You put some honey on there to, to heal it. You put some grease on there as a barrier and some lint to keep it dry. It doesn't sound as wild when you break it down that way. You're right, Sydney. I'm sorry, ancient ancient folks. <laughs> um, and as we've talked about with honey before, I- interestingly, the use of honey arose in different cultures um, independently. So, like, so maybe we did observe something. I don't know. Ancient I don't wanna... Indians were also using. I don't want to detract. Yeah. We're also using honey, but uh, much of of why the Egyptians were probably good at wound dressing is because they were so good at mummies. So good at mummies. They're so good at mummies. Hey, what's up? My name's Derek. I'm an ancient Egyptian, and I'm good at mummies. (laughs) Uh, The uh, Egyptians also made the first adhesive bandage. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Congratulations, guys. You know, self-sticking bandage. I don't think they called it Band-Aid. I'm fairly right. certain Band-Aid does not date back That's to the ancient good. Egyptians. <laughs> uh, they also... Trademark that. What did you say? Band-Aid. <laughs> Very good. Because it provides aid. It provides aid and it's a band. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Is that how Egyptians sound? Yeah. I don't... <laughs> the actually. ancient ones? They, they probably didn't even speak English. Yeah, you know what? I bet they didn't. <laughs> um, there's a lot of movies that probably need to know that. Yeah, because they, yeah, like Prince of Egypt. Yes. The Ten Commandments. Or like the common default, if we're not sure what language we should have the characters speak, we'll have them sort of speak very proper English. Yeah, or transatlantic. Yeah, it's not, it's not a British accent or an American accent. It's right. It's just that sort of. It's basically the accent for fancy. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like a very fancy English. Yeah. But it's for it's no country. It's no specific area. And it's the wrong language, so never mind. Uh but uh, anyway. <laughs> of of your diversions, this is up there in the top ten, I think. 
Thanks. I'll you, hey, I'll use it tomorrow in Grand Rounds. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, well, no, you can mark that one off. It's like, okay, that's a dud. <laughs> I'm not going to do the ancient Egyptian, Egyptian accent stuff. Of course, I won't be there for you to kick around. So you, I begged and pleaded for Sydney to let me come because they wanted her to do a, a, a sort of medical history Grand Rounds. I was like, well, that's not going to be the same without hoops. She was like, I think it'll be fine. I actually have to teach them. Go on. <laughs> and I, the, too many distractions sometimes. Fart jokes <laughs> is what you mean. <laughs> you can say the word, Sydney. The, uh, the Egyptians also believed that the color green was healing and was the color of life. So a lot of wounds would be painted green. Ah, hmm. Good. I read this note I read as I was reading about like wound healing techniques throughout history and I thought, okay, well that's obviously off base. And then the author tried to kind of make a case for like now what's interesting is that they may have used a copper based paint. And copper in petri dishes is somewhat uh in inhibitory to bacterial growth. And so you could make the argument and I was like, nah, that's a stretch. It was the it's, color it, green. It might be enough for <laughs> Um, what I'm going to call a anecdotal justification, right? It might be right. enough to like, I don't know, it seemed to have worked, <laughs> right? Like, it, it might be I, enough for it to, to have helped some people, like... Maybe, but then again, as we've talked about before on the show, just because something works in a lab doesn't mean it works in a human body, so... Right, so we don't have trials. Copper for... inhibiting bacterial growth in a lab doesn't necessarily... Yeah. Um... The uh, and if you go through a lot of the ancient um, Egyptian, uh, like the Smith papyrus, the Ebers papyrus, the Berlin papyrus, uh, they all kind of have this common idea that the presence of pus in a wound is actually a good thing. It, that's not technically incorrect, right? I mean, you should you want it out, right? Well, I mean, if you're talking about like an abscess. Once you see pus, that is better because that means you've opened it and it's draining and it's not, you know, and then it will heal. Yeah. But generally speaking, if you have like an ulcer or a cut, you'd rather there not be pus there, honey. That's true. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Because then the infection has occurred generally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so pus is usually a bad thing, but there was this concept of pus being a sign of healing. Too much was bad, but you wanted some pus. Like the pus is how you know it's working. Right. Okay. Um, this concept, it's really interesting because this hung around in wound healing for like 3,000 years. The Romans would call it laudable pus. Laudable pus. <laughs> Your pus is laudable. That was actually my uh, nickname on the high school basketball team. <laughs> I'm sorry, honey. Um, this, this would hang around until like the 1500s when French surgeon Perret finally said... I think this is wrong. Listen, I think maybe we should not be encouraging so much pus in all of these open wounds. We've gone terribly wrong. Um, if you, let's say that you had an open uh, cut or what we would call laceration, like okay. a cut that needed to be closed. And not all wounds need to be closed, but let's say that this is a wound that needed to be closed. Stitches. Yes. But do you know what they would use as stitches at times in ancient Egypt? No. This is maybe my favorite thing I learned. Tell me. Ant pinchers. Pincers. Really? They would take an ant and like grip the bottom of it and like hold its little like mandibles, its little, you know, the little pincers open. Yeah. And then make sure that those kind of get on either side of the wound. 
and then like let them squeeze You're together to me. pull the wound edges together. And then once they had it in place, they would just like yank its little head off that's me. and that just leave the mean. pincers there. That's mean. But and do it. That's the, those were the sutures. That's why that can't right? be true. I don't believe that. I have seen pictures of this done in modern day. Really? Yes. You can look that up like ant pincers used as sutures and find images of this if you're interested. That's so gnarly. I mean, wow. and it, as far as like the wound healing aspect, I don't, I don't know how that would work like 24 hours, 48 hours a week later, but it, it will pull the edges of the wound, approximate the edges of the wound. It that, will do that. It that, will pull them together. That must be confusing for any ants. <laughs> it's like okay well that's good but now what animals pinchers are we gonna get to hold greg's neck shut because now <laughs> greg has this issue are there smaller ants that we don't know about whose pinchers we can use to hold greg's there, neck there shut? are smaller and smaller ants i guess you need to find like wicked small ants huh mm -hmm. poor greg <laughs> so uh, the the Greeks were the first to introduce the idea that wounds should be kept clean. So they actually advised washing wounds like with boiled water, wine, vinegar. This idea that like remaining, keeping the, keeping the wound clean throughout the duration of its healing it's was good. actually important. Um, they also kind of distinguished between an acute wound and a chronic wound, which is really interesting because you do manage them differently. And they... Hippocrates talked about that, like there were different cures and, and poultices and herbs recommended for a wound you just got as opposed to like a chronic ulcer that wouldn't heal, hmm. that kind of thing. Um, Hippocrates' specific note on chronic wounds for an obstinate ulcer, sweet wine and a lot of patients should be enough. That doesn't make any sense, Hippocrates. I don't understand what you're saying. On the flip side, sweet wine and a lot of patience is probably enough for most things in life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's bad advice if you have no idea what you're doing. Right. Oh, uh, no, the sweet wine's for me. And also the lot of patience is for me, the doctor, because <laughs> I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> I don't know. We make this up as we go along at this point in history. I don't know if you heard. Things get worse before they get better. Sorry. Sorry. Not for many millennia. Anyway, <laughs> here's your sticker. You did a great job. Uh, the Romans introduced what we consider in, in medicine kind of like the, the cardinal signs of inflammation. So if a wound is inflamed you look for uh, redness you look for heat uh, uh pain um swelling ruber color dolor tumor tumor those are classic signs of inflammation and uh and celsus introduced this concept and this was very key to the idea of like following a wound and seeing if it was healing appropriately or if something had gone wrong um, from there it broke down into like some like celsus advised using honey and bran or cork and ashes on wounds were common things um, galen continued the vinegar and wine theme that was very popular mm -hmm. plenty the elder one of you our favorites we had to get his big wet you know it's really disappointing is it I, I read everything from natural history i could find that's plenty's plenty's big book on wound healing and various things to put on wounds for just one of those good old like Pliny the Elder one wacky good old gems. <laughs> wacky like what are you what are you thinking Pliny why and he really let me down this time 
Um, he would often say, just let it breathe and leave it open and it will probably heal. Fine. Um, and then even in his variety of actual treatments for wounds, and there are many, there are extensive lists. It's really just various herbs or roots mixed with honey. Almost every single one ends with and add some honey. So it's really hard to poke fun at old plenty with this one because I think it was really just about the honey. And, and then he would throw in different herbs depending on like what location of the body or what caused the wound. We'll get you next time, Plenty. It's yeah. all right. So Plenty, you get a pass uh, on wound. Every pork chop is perfect. <laughs> uh, uh, if every pork chop were perfect, we wouldn't have hot dogs. So, so there. That's true. That's Steven the, Universe says. That's good um, advice, Justin. What about after uh, after the, uh, the old, those Romans there? Well, things, as I already alluded to, things are going to get worse before they get better. Nice. <laughs> but, my, my Middle Ages. Yep, yeah, but before we get to the Middle Ages, let's hit the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, 
you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Okay, Sid, I'm fired up. You know the Middle Ages is always the worst. What do they got this time? <laughs> well, overall, in the Middle Ages, as you may imagine, techniques were not greatly improved. Uh, there were some things that were still being gleaned from, like, the writings of ancient Greece and Rome and, and were still being used. So, like, linen dressings, wine, lint, um, honey. You know, those yeah. kinds of things were persisting. But as far as advances in the field, there generally were not a lot at period. In most On fields. anything. Really. <laughs> yeah, it was rough. Um, they're still debating about, you know, should we, every time somebody gets a wound, should we sew it up? Should we leave it be? I don't know. You know. I don't know. It's the Middle Ages, man. Just figure it out. And and part of that is that at the time, a lot of kind of magical thinking overtook scientific inquiry. Um, the use of charms to ward off, you know, infections and that kinds of things, um, or just things like prayer. You know, a lot of a lot of treatments were religiously motivated. So, you know, go pray, and 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 you'll get better. Or you won't. No. That's pretty much it. the the dominate the the dominant theory in medicine at the time was the humoral theory. So the, you know, the uh, four humors, four humors in balance. Yeah, exactly. So treatments for that usually included like bleeding the patient or cupping uh, things that would make you puke, things that would make you poop, things that would make you pee, uh, that kind of thing. And even for wounds, it's really interesting that bleeding would be used for wounds. But it was. Yeah. I have a wound. It's bleeding. Well, let me cut you somewhere else. Good Good news. Like, <laughs> my treatment is already working. Uh, now, there were, I, I found this interesting. So one common wound problem in the Middle Ages uh, were arrow wounds, because I guess the longbow was a popular weapon mm -hmm. at this point in history. And so uh, the way that a wound uh, or the way that an arrow head was attached to the shaft was usually like with, with beeswax or something. So it wasn't on there that tightly. I mean, it's it, they usually would stay on for like the duration of the... They got the job done. Yes. I mean, they flew through the air and landed in a human, mm -hmm. if, if your aim was good. So they did the job from that perspective. But And you were aiming at a human, because it may have just been a warning shot you were trying to do. Or trying to <laughs> That's spook, true. Or trying That's to true. Spook them. So it, that really depends on your aim, though. That's not the fault of the arrow. Fair. But the problem is, if you got shot and you didn't die, and then someone was trying to treat you for that arrow wound, they would probably try to remove the arrow. That was usually, like, the first thing to do. And if you just grabbed the arrow and pulled... Well, other than the fact that there were arrows with hooks and barbs and all kinds of... And you know, the fletching would get caught. Ugh. Yeah, all kinds of awful things like that. The other problem is that the head of the arrow would often just come off. Mm -hmm. So you would get the, the shaft out, but you still have this arrowhead lodged in your body somewhere. And every metal detector from then on out is going to be <laughs> so annoying. So, and I mean, it's not like the arrows were clean to begin with. So like, this is bad. This is, you're in a bad, you're in a bad way. This, yeah, it's rough. Uh, so one specialized instrument that was invented at this time in history was called the arrow spoon. Okay. Which was a, a kind of a hooked, a long hooked instrument 
And the way you would use this is first you would want to widen the wound some. Okay. So you would want to kind of just probe around the arrowhead and mm -hmm. just like push out. Groovy. Okay. So that I love the wound it. got a little bigger. Yes. And then you would use this spoon, spoon. device to kind of hook underneath the arrowhead. Mm-hmm. And then yank it out of there. And there were different variations. There were some that even had like screws in them. And you oh. would try to like insert them into the arrowhead and screw them in and then pull it out that way. Um, and then the patient had been <laughs> anesthetized. We had no anesthesia. Mm. They, If they were lucky, they had a stick to bite on. And uh, after you got the arrowhead out, if your patient has survived this, then of course the natural progression you would take a hot iron and stick it in the wound to cauterize to it. cauterize it to stop cool the bleeding all day so is that an advance i don't know that we can count that as an no advance. no it was a tool that got a job done it did something <laughs> i would not call it an elegant tool no uh, and probably not really a multitasker there. Nah, just that just one. A single use. Maybe if you needed a melon baller on a short <laughs> on short notice, it would work. Uh, now I will say that as we move into like the 1400s, we see the concepts of uh, debridement, meaning cleaning up like dead tissue and stuff from a wound that is inhibiting healing, mm -hmm. getting rid of that without actually just kind of cutting the whole wound. You're just getting rid of the stuff that's going to stop it from healing right? and, um, and cleansing it and trying to like recognize that there's a certain kind of tissue that means a wound is healing called granulation tissue. It's like, um, pink fresh looking tissue on the edges of the wound okay that use that's a good sign and if you see that like encourage that keep that growing and get rid of the dead stuff okay like there was that recognition by english surgeon thomas morstead all the way back in the 1400s well, that's something and then during the 1500s, that's when we get into Ambrose Perre, who revolutionized wound care not just with the ideas i mentioned earlier that pus is not a good sign and we should not try to encourage things to mm -hmm. to be infected. Up. But but by encouraging just like basic basic care things like good nutrition, sleep, better dressings, um, ligature, uh, the idea of ligating blood vessels as opposed to cauterizing them. Don't just burn a wound to stop it from bleeding. You could actually sew like um, sew up vessels mm. to stop them, and then that doesn't do as much tissue damage obviously um and then the idea of like a pressure ulcer something that had developed from just uh putting too much pressure on it like something that had been laying on a bed a bed sore for a long time uh just offload the pressure so put a pillow under their leg or something and get their heel off the bed revolutionary idea so simple but there we go there you go um it wasn't until as we move into like the 18th century Surgery was really its own field at this point, mm -hmm. and that's when you see more surgical involvement in wound care, as I mentioned, like the idea that we need to surgically clean certain wounds to allow them to heal. Um, and then we move into things like the process of antiseptic technique, um, and then after that, things like antibiotics. Um, and all that happened because in the 1800s, and I think we've talked about this before, Ignaz Semmelweis, the guy who d told you to wash your hands. Sure. The much revolutionary. To, much to the chagrin of everybody else. Right. The revolutionary idea to wash your hands uh, was, was introduced. And then Joseph Lister was uh, the one who said, you know what, in the operating room, we should wash things with certain, I think he was using things like carbolic acid or something but anyway things to, to clean instruments and whatnot mm -hmm. the idea that you know if you use dressings and instruments that have been cleaned perhaps not everybody wants gangrene 
Exactly. Um, and then we get to Pasteur's germ theory of disease. And we suddenly understand how infection is spread, more or less. It's and rad for Lister better. that he got that before Pasteur got his jam <laughs> going. It's quite the cold shot. Well, it's the same with Semmelweis. I mean, he, he came up with the idea that washing your hands improved outcomes for patients without really knowing why. You know? And in this, and again, this was a time in medicine where, like, the bloodier your coat was when you walked into surgery, right. the better a surgeon you were you considered to be. You wanted it stiffened by blood. That's how... Uh, exactly. Physicians, other physicians knew you were legit. Exactly. And you walked into the OR that way, not out. Not out. In. In that way. Um, as, as we look at advances in wound care from this point forward, a lot of it's traced to various wars. As you can imagine, those were times where there were lots of wounds being created. And so a lot of advances were made kind of on the fly as to how to treat them. So in the Civil War, we see better bandages and iodine beginning to be used to clean wounds. Um, in World War I, we come up with something called Dakin Solution, which was created by English chemist Henry Drysdale Dakin and French surgeon Alexis Carroll. It was a solution of sodium hypochlorite, which is sort of like bleach. Okay. It's basically it's bleach, but it's like a dilute bleach. But anyway, Dakin's solution was good at removing dead tissue and leaving the living tissue safe. Huh. Um, and it's still used to this day in some cases. Good job, Dakin. Yeah. So Crushed it. So pretty cool. Um, one, one side note that has, has happened already in the, the chronologically speaking, um, but I wanted to give a little bit of time to at the end of our show, are maggots. Nature's... Bugs. Microsurgeons, maybe. Nature's <laughs> microsurgeons. Okay. How about that? Uh, so maggots, many people are, are kind of aware maggots are used, maybe. Do you know that? Maggots are still used today? Uh, yes, but I only know that because I'm married to you. Okay. Uh, maggots are, are, they really are nature's microsurgeons. So it has been noticed for hundreds of years that if a wound gets infested with maggots, fly larva, in some, t in some cases, it actually does a little better. This is because maggots are very good at eating only dead tissue. They don't eat living tissue. Not interested. And no, we want that good, good dead <laughs> stuff because they nasty. As, <laughs> as I mentioned, getting the dead tissue out of a wound is very important to the healing process. Um, so myiasis or the a wound being infested with larva, my, myiasis, or just you're being infested with larva in general, um, has probably been noticed for, I mean, thousands of years, certainly. Um, there's some evidence that maybe the Mayans and some of the Aboriginal tribes of Australia knew about this and utilized this technique for a long time. But the first time we actually have recorded, yes, maggots are good for wounds use, dates back to Napoleon. In 1829, Napoleon Surgeon General Baron Dominique Luray described um, uh, wounds on the battlefield that had been infested with fly larvae that actually seemed to do better than wounds that weren't infested with fly larvae uh -huh. and began to theorize that, that the larvae were doing something to the wounds that were actually, that was actually helping. Um, so in the Civil War, there were actually uh, times where blowfly, blowfly larvae were introduced into wounds mm. to clean them. Um, and then again, even more so in World War I, American surgeon William Baer noticed that uh, soldiers who had maggot-infested gashes 
uh, didn't seem to have the infection issue or the swelling in the wound that patients who didn't have maggot infested God, the willpower it would take to not just knock those bad boys off. (laughs) So not only did he not knock them off, but Dr. Bear actually started using this um, in at Johns Hopkins in 1929. Uh, He actually was mainly using it. He was working at the, the Associated Children's Hospital and using it in cases of like chronic wounds with osteomyelitis, which is an infection of the bone in children. And uh, nurse, this patient is very serious. Bring me my giant box of maggots I keep in my office. <laughs> but this, he was getting, he was getting really great results from this. Uh, his the wound, the wound healing process was uh, greatly improved at his facility and in the patients that he he tried this with. So within five years of him doing this and publishing it, over a thousand American, Canadian, European surgeons were using maggots in their practice. For wound healing. Great. Uh, A lot of hospitals started to operate their own insectaries to grow and utilize maggots because you don't want to go like scrape them off roadkill. You want them at the ready. You want them sterile. You want them clean. It's a fun gig. It's not good to go get them off like dead animals out in the wild. Wow, I thought they were so great. It needed only the dead <laughs> no, we stuff. Want, we want the clean larva. And there was even a lab that, that opened, uh, uh, Letterly Labs in Pearl River, New York, where you could get your supply of surgical maggots if you needed them, if you didn't have an insectary. So from 1931... Do they transform into blowflies when you're cured? That's how you know, like they've had enough of you and they're... <laughs> that sounds like magical thinking. Yeah. They will, uh, I mean, they will at some point become flies. Right. And then they'll leave. <laughs> you grow up so fast. The uh, so so by 1931, it was pretty commonplace. Um, st- uh, sterile maggots of the green bottle fly are the most common, and I think persist as the most commonly used. Lucilia sericata is the if you're interested in that kind of thing. What kind of fly is used? No, I'm um, not. It and you really see like this so. 1931, it's introduced. Everybody is raving about this new ther- therapy. Wild for it. It really dies down in the 40s with the introduction of antibiotics. Don't need you maggots anymore. Close the insectary. Because <laughs> everybody thinks, well, we'll just... Stinky, <laughs> stinky dugs out of a job. We'll just give Our you antibiotics. Our lead insectician, stinky dug. <laughs> but that was, it's kind of a misunderstanding of what they're doing because they're, they're cleaning up the wound. They're cleaning up dead tissue. Antibiotics don't do that. They might kill bacteria, but they don't clean up dead tissue the way that maggots do. So... There was still this undercurrent of people insisting there's probably a place for this in medicine. And then it wasn't really until the FDA approved it again in, I think, 2004. Wow. Yeah. That recently, recently when they said, you know what, you're right. There is a place for maggot therapy and it can be reintroduced. So maggot debridement therapy or MDT is what we call it now. You introduce up to a thousand maggots into a wound. You leave them there for anywhere from one to three days at a time. Um, and you can use it for any kind of wound that has like, like I said, dead tissue, the skin is kind of sloughy, there's pus, you know, something that needs to be cleaned up. Mm-hmm. This would be an alternative to other ways, other surgical methods of cleaning up a wound or, or other, um, not even surgical chemical methods of, of debriding a wound. Um, the neat thing is uh, that we have a lot of studies that say it, it does in fact help that it reduces um, the intense pain mm-hmm. from some of these wounds. It reduces the odor. 
Sure. That's nice. Um, and in 80 to 95% of cases, a complete or significant debridement of the wound is achieved. All right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it actually is pretty successful if used in the right case. Not bad. Um, it reduces your risk of amputation. Nice. Which is great. It reduces your risk of bacteremia, which is infection in your bloodstream. And um, the only real side, the only real side effect, <laughs> well, there are a couple. One, there are some people who have discomfort with it. Okay. Um, not a lot, not as many as you'd think. Twenty to twenty-five percent. But uh, I think some people well, are I, fibbing. I would honestly. assume it would be higher. Yeah, no kidding. But I um, wouldn't. No way. How about you <laughs> use stitches? It's twenty seventeen. <laughs> It stitch me and up. It, and it depends on the wound. I mean, if you have like exposed nerves and things and you've got a maggot crawling across it, that's probably going to cause some pain. But if you're talking about something like a chronic diabetic foot, foot ulcer, that patient may not have any sensation left in that foot. They may have such severe nerve damage that they're not feeling anything. And so in which case you probably wouldn't have more pain for maggot therapy. Um, so it depends on the wound and the patient. Uh, there are some other drawbacks. Medicinal maggots are alive. And so... You have to ship them there, assuming Alive. you don't have your own in your own lab, which most hospitals don't. Ours doesn't. But you have to ship them there alive and you have to care for them and make sure they main, maintain their living status. Keep their spirits up. Play the music. <laughs> so about 1% arrive dead. That's actually, again, not as bad as I would have assumed. Yeah. Um, and also, though, because they are alive, they can escape. They do move. Fun. Okay, great. <laughs> And once they escape, I saw the, the, them called mobile fomites, meaning that a fomite is uh, an object that can spread disease. Like a white coat is a classic example of a fomite. That's why, we're, that's why there's more and more studies encouraging us to be careful about wearing white coats because we're going in and out of rooms wearing white coats and mm -hmm. spreading disease maybe on our white coats. They're a fomite. Yeah. Well, these are mobile ones. Yeah, so they're they're covered in infectious material and they move. Let's all agree they're a mobile fomite when they brought them in, gang. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. They, well, and they now they're bugs. Yet. No, they've been bugs the whole time. You brought bugs into your hospital. Clever girl. Come so, on. So you have to keep the dressings over top of them pretty tight to keep them in place. You don't want them wiggling away. Um, and if they do wriggle away, uh, fugitives is what I saw them referred to in some of the papers. If you have fugitives... <laughs> I mean, they will become flies. Perfect. Which is not great in a hospital. Yeah. And then somebody's just going to swat them. And it's like, that's a doctor. What are you doing? <laughs> that maggot is a doctor. Um, you know, and then a lot of people, there are a lot of papers that talk about the yuck factor. Mm -hmm. It actually tends to be a bigger problem for the doctor than for the patients who get maggot debridement therapy. Oh. In general, most patients tolerate it pretty well. Um, and, and if it's working, I think, and you're, you're able to avoid amputating your foot or something, mm -hmm. then it's worth it. Mm -hmm. um, but they do have like special dressings to help cut down on that. Sort of like a double-sided enclosed kind of dressing that you can like peel off and apply to the wound. There are ways to do it so that the person applying the dressing and the patient themselves never really see the maggots. Mm -hmm. They have all kinds of advanced uh, encasement dressings that you can put on and, and the maggots are there and they're doing their thing, don't but you don't really me. see them. That's no good. Don't lie to me. So. Um, well, Sid, that was all very grody. <laughs> Sorry about I that. I hope you're proud of yourself. Uh, thank you for listening to Sawbones. Uh, a couple of things going on we want to tell you about. Um, 
it's not too late. We're going to be at PodCon this weekend, um, and you can, if you can get out there to Seattle, I think they got tickets at the door, um, or you can go to PodCon.com, and you actually get a remote ticket, and you can uh, listen to a lot of the shows and enjoy them uh, right from the comfort of your own home. So uh, it's going to be cool. Check it out. PodCon. Uh, Bam is going to be there, still buffering. You can go see them live, get some stuff signed. You can... Uh, See, uh, uh, we're doing an, an adventure zone discussion, not a not a live adventure zone, but we're doing a talk about it and a bunch of panels and stuff. Night Vale is going to be there. Hank and John Green going to be there. It's going to be fun. Um, so and we're doing a live show. Oh yeah, Sawbones, Sawbones the podcast. Yeah. going to be there. So uh, check that totally out. Podcast.com. I also want to mention uh, it's the candlelight season. We're doing a live candlelight show in Huntington. It actually sold out pretty quickly. Um, so for other people that want to get in on the holiday spirit, uh, Sydney's sister Riley, also still buffering, uh, organized a fundraiser uh, called Be a Candle Nights 2017 Star. And you can, uh, the way it works, you can kick in five or more dollars um, towards the uh, towards the cause, which I'll tell you about in a second. And you can get a star on the candlelights tree. And the cause is Big Brothers, Big Sisters of uh, South Central West Virginia. Because uh, when they started supporting, uh, offering more services and got a grant for LGBTQ plus youth, um, they uh, were actually uh, had a big donor pull $80,000 away from them because mm-hmm. of that work. And that, that is severely impacting their ability to provide services in general to, to kids in the area. So all of Candlelight's is going to go to them, all the ticket sales, all the merch, and this Candlelight's 2017 star. You can get yours at bit.ly forward slash mbmbam stars. Uh, can I also say I I'm was on a different podcast. <gasps> How uh, dare you? Sorry about that. But uh, if if you feel so inclined, uh, you can hear me on Court Appointed next week. They published this coming Monday, uh, where my dad and my uncle Michael, who is an actual real deal lawyer. My dad is not, but he makes lots of dad jokes. Uh, talk about vaccine law, and I'm there for the science. So you can check that out. Excellent. And then you can find that at iTunes. Yes. Search for Court Appointed. And folks, that is going to do it for us. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to you at home, just for being you, but also for, for helping to spread the word about the show, rating or being on iTunes, tweeting about it, etc. Um, but uh, that's going to do it for us. So until next week, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Yeah. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.